whether and how undergraduate education can um, help people shape their own minds and character over time. And so I think that's a traditional ideal of humanistic education that I really like. And so I think, um, you know, we shouldn't be skeptical about that. We don't have any reason based on science to be skeptical of that. And it's a field that people should study. Um, but I'm not sure that uh, scientific study of this should guide, you know, our pedagogy as teachers is, I guess, the last thing I would say. On this episode of Lawrence Talks, professor of philosophy at the University of Kansas, Dr. Brad Coquelet, joins Kevin and I to discuss a study that explores what effects, if any, undergraduate philosophy courses can have on the decision-making of undergraduate students. Additionally, our conversation with Dr. Coquelet explores the general role philosophy professors have in instructing students and possible concerns over mass data gathering. The Lawrence Talks podcast is brought to you in part thanks to our partners at the Hall Center for the Humanities, IDRH, KU Philosophy Department, and the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. Thank you for listening and enjoy. to this episode of the Lawrence Talks podcast. I'm your host, David Tomez. Uh, and for this episode, I am joined by my co-host, uh, Kevin Watson. And our, our topic for today, I think, is interesting for both philosophers and philosophy teachers um, and students who have taken philosophy courses in the past. On both ends, the questions might be different or the interest might be different. For students, uh, one-time students of philosophy course or intro to ethics course, you may have asked yourself uh, why you're taking this course, why it's required of you to take it, and what to what end is uh, is this class intended to, to serve to some degree? Uh, as a professor, as a or in our case, in the Kev- case of Kevin and I, as teaching assistants, you may have asked yourself: Are these arguments that we are introducing to students uh, having any effect uh, on their behavior? Well, for a philosopher and, and and a student at one point, you may be interested to hear that a few. Uh, or three three philosophers have asked this very question. Not only asked it, but also have sought out to to study it and to see if there are some sort of verifiable facts that can be uh, reviewed and uh, observed in, in in regarding this question. Um, and our guest today is one of those three philosophers, uh, our very own uh, Dr. Brad Coquelet of the University of Kansas. Brad, thank you for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on. So to begin with, thought we might begin setting the foundation for our discussion by asking you th- these questions about uh, first what the study is about, what it what it what it sets, sets out to show, and uh, what were the sort of motivations leading into into the study. Well, so I guess I mean the way I think about this is that uh, when I was in grad school, this guy Eric Fitzgabel, who's a professor at UC Riverside. He had this blog, and so I would procrastinate by reading his blog and commenting on it, and we became friends through that. And then later on, when I had my first job, I went to give a talk at Riverside on uh, just on ethics. And Eric and I were getting a beer, is my memory, or lunch or something while I was out there. And he had posted something. He had done a lot of studies that 
he had gone around and, and say, looked at the rates at which ethics books are stolen out of libraries. And it turns out it's higher than other areas of philosophy or other books. Uh, and I think like the Bible is stolen a lot too. So he didn't just look at philosophy. Um, and then he went to philosophy conferences and he interviewed people and said, how ethical is the ethicist in your department? So, you know, like philosophy department, some people study ethics, other people study other types of stuff. And so he said, and basically it looked like the ethicists, if anything, were less uh, ethical than their colleagues, according to all these reports. And he had other stuff. And so he generally was skeptical about the study of ethics, making people more ethical. And so basically I didn't really, uh, Think that was quite right and just my own experience teaching intro to ethics i usually pull my students and i and just talk to them about stuff and i found that at least on certain issues they definitely change their minds about what's ethical they kind of clarify their ethical views and then i find usually students discover new things they take to be unethical or much worse ethically than they thought and then they report uh, to some degree intending to change their behavior. So basically, I, Eric and I talked about it and then we kind of came up with this idea of a way to study that. And so this is the study is that at UC Riverside, they had a big classes where they just taught general ethics topics. But in the main class, nobody talked about vegetarianism and no one talked about giving to the global poor which are two common topics you could cover, but so we purposely had that not discussed in the main lecture with like the, the professor and 400 people. And then in the sections with TAs, like half the TAs would talk about vegetarianism and the other half would talk about charity. And then what we did is we gathered information on the food purchasing habits of these students. And that's sort of a complicated logistical story. But at the end, we got a lot of purchasing information about what these people bought at all the dining halls and everything. And then we were able to measure uh, both how did people's opinions about eating meat change in the vegetarianism subsection of the class and how did their behavior change in terms of how much meat they ate. And then we could compare it with the kids who didn't hear anything about vegetarianism. They just heard the main lecture and then about charity. So that was our control was the kids in the charity section. They hadn't been taught anything about vegetarianism. And the result uh, as a first gloss is in general, there was a reduction in the amount of eat meat that was eaten by the kids who took the vegetarianism class. So they basically were exposed to arguments that made them think about the ethics of eating meat. The majority of them came to think eating uh, factory farm meat at least is ethically bad or wrong or something a lot of them moved in that direction and then they as a group they ate less meat so it looks like uh you know we, we already sort of thought that every we all so the third philosopher involved was peter singer and so peter and eric and i all thought that their opinions would change peter and i thought that their behavior would change and eric thought their behavior would not change so we had this kind of like disagreement about what was going to happen um and at first, it looked like the data might support Eric very early on. And then when we got a lot of data, it became very clear that they ate less meat. So that's the story. <laughs> Would you consider this uh, experiment or the philosophy that you're doing in this paper to be a sort of experimental moral philosophy or just empirical moral philosophy? Is it behavioral science? Is it social science? Is it a form of nudging? Like, how, do, how would you classify it? It seems like 
it's, it's hard to classify the type of research that you're conducting here. Yeah, I guess I think of it as, um, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I, I would think of it as empirical uh, science. So like I also work with psychologists and I think it's not that far from what empirical psychologists do. You're just, you're just asking this question, um, how does ex- exposure to certain stimuli affect the behavior of the subjects? Um, so we weren't asking any, our experiment didn't, didn't tackle any questions about what, whether it actually was right or wrong to eat meat or anything like that. Um, so we didn't, we didn't investigate the answers to any normative questions about what people have reason to do or what's ethical or not. Um, we were just trying to engage in this inquiry about, you know, kind of like, is what does one thing cause another thing to happen? So I, I guess I think of that as, yeah, as a part of, empirical science, but it might be philosophically relevant and it might be important for philosophers to think about uh, it. This sort of study is one of the things that maybe philosophers and philosophy departments can point to when um, the uh, higher ups come knocking on, on the door in terms of why philosophy is valuable at the university. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good question. One of my, um, so again, there's there's not a uniformity of background views between the three authors, Eric Schwitzgebel, Peter Singer, and, and me. <laughs> but my view is uh, one of the things over time that I was excited about this study, or made me excited about this study, was that Jonathan Haidt is a very influential psychologist, and he wrote a book, The Righteous Mind, and he has some other books. He, he has a program in psychology that's called the Social Intuitionistic Program. And he, in his books, uh, I think it's especially in The Righteous Mind, he just comes out and says that he says something like a a philosophy class will never change anyone's behavior. And he generally thinks the attempt to improve people's degree of morality by engaging, sort of encouraging them to engage in rational reflection, he thinks that's not going to have an impact. And so I think this study is useful in that way to show that that claim that Hayden, I guess other people probably have made is not uh, as well supported as they thought. And it encourages, you know, it doesn't definitively show anything, but it encourages uh, and leaves, leaves open and kind of reopens the possibility that these classes you teach at the university, they could help students think rationally about ethics. And that might actually change the way they live their life. So to me, that's, a good thing. And yeah, I suppose, right, you might think that could be something that would make people like those classes. <laughs> well, I, I wonder, because this sort of gets to, uh, you know, the question of what purpose these, these classes are supposed to have, like, because I can imagine a few people on both sides of both conservatives and liberals having an issue with uh, us saying that the purpose of these class of these classes would, would to be to change the behavior of the students, there might be concerns about indoctrination of some sort, or so. It, I wonder if that's if that's factored into professors' general approach about their class of they don't want to maybe give off a sort of what they think is right to students, but just sort of give these general ideas or introduce these general ideas about right and wrong for particular topics, but not to nudge them in any particular way. So it, it sort of it raises a question for for height that maybe these, these classes aren't intended to change behavior. They're just sort of uh, to maybe at least 
introduce these ways of thinking to to students and nothing more. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I mean, so there's a couple of issues here. I mean, one is, do professors have an ax to grind in terms of they're pushing some contentious moral view or even a view about what we should count as sufficient evidence for believing things? Because that could come up, say, in like a philosophy of religion class where you're teaching about God's existence. And that's, that's, that's one issue. And then I guess another issue is I talk to a lot of philosophers and they sort of, they think professors should be neutral in the sense they shouldn't be pushing or design their class in a way that would push students to adopt some contentious view, say, of morality or like, like take like abortion or something. You know, they shouldn't be pushing just one view. And instead they say, oh, well, we should be exposing students to all the options and encouraging them to use their own uh, autonomy to make up their mind. So one issue with that is that thinking that autonomy is a good thing and, and rational reflection and creating, making up your own mind, the idea that that's a good thing is not neutral. So I, I find that, um, you know, there's, there's, and that, so that's one issue is that it's a little hard to claim, I think, that um, you can be completely neutral uh, if you're approaching things the way philosophers standardly do. Standardly do. Um, that said, I think there are good arts. That, that opens up questions about why maybe you think uh, promoting autonomy and rational reflection in your students is less contentious than other types of <laughs> contentious values. So I guess that's the main, that, that's the first thing I would say about that is that yeah, there's this pretend neutrality I find some some professors aim to have. But on the other hand, I'm sympathetic to the idea that if you're teaching something like abortion, I, what I try to do at least is try to teach both sides and play devil's advocate often for the position I think most of the students don't accept. For me, that's in the service of trying to get the students to make up their own mind to think what's defensible. So, so that is kind of my mode of operating, but I do think there's this question about uh, isn't isn't promoting autonomy itself that that is a, that's a contentious value right there. So there's no there's no neutral ground. Um, One question we didn't quite get to is you know positioning this study within uh, other studies like it. So yeah, you had mentioned that Schwitzgable has conducted some research similar to this before, but this I think was a sort of entirely new within the philosophical domain, at least. Yeah, no, I mean, so even it's not just, it's just not just philosophy. It's all of empirical psychology. It turns out there's another study that's actually relatively similar that's been published, like I think right after ours. But so the main difference here is that the previous work, even in just empirical psychology or uh, some people that were in management schools and things like that have done some, some relevantly similar studies of education's impact it's all based on self-report so they'll ask students you know oh you know what did you think about this topic after we taught you about it and then they'll say things like do you plan to act differently or they might sometimes they're like did you did you eat less meat and the issue with that is just in psychology it's well established there's just tons of problems with relying on self-report so um I guess some simple ones are that people will tend to answer self-report questions in ways that are influenced by social uh, approval, a desire for social approval. So they'll give the answer that will they think or that they've been conditioned to believe or 
expect will will get social approval. Um, and it can be globally or it can be like because of the to the person they're talking to, you know, like they give you the answer they think you want. Then another thing is people give answers that are in line with their self uh, image of who they how they want to be presented, which is, you know, related. Um, and then another thing is generally if you ask people a big like open ended large question, like if I say to you, what was your what was your term like? People are really bad at assessing what on average uh, things were like in a period of time. What they'll do is they'll they'll remember like highlights and lowlights, and then their answer to a question like "What was the whole class like?" They'll just report their reaction to the, like these highlights or lowlights. And so, in this case, if you ask people, "Did you stop eating meat?" They might like remember the one day they stopped eating meat and be like, "Oh yeah, I've eaten way less meat." But but people, that's just the way our we kind of suck cognitively, so we can't track. We don't. Know, we're not real reliable guides, even when we're even when we're not influenced by the social uh, approval stuff. So, be, for those and other reasons, um, we thought the self-report just doesn't cut it, especially with these moral issues, right? Like, of course, people aren't going to want to even admit to themselves if they haven't improved the way they wanted to. Or that was our thought. So, it's the first study to try to kind of come up with this behavioral measure. Like, did, what did they literally eat? Now. Uh, Eric, Eric Schwitzgabel and this guy um, at, who's a psychologist at Harvard have a newer thing that's trying to do the same thing for charity. So if you, if you convince people they should give more for charity, can we measure whether exposure to those arguments can lead people to actually give more money? So they've now done that, but that isn't done, but they've done the initial, they've got the initial feedback on that. And getting getting to the the sort of the content of to some of the content of the study, you said that you there are these two arguments or these uh, two sort of uh, topics that that you introduced students to. One was about vegetarianism, and the other one was about uh, global charity. I mean, Kevin and I know these sort of arguments, but uh, could you kind of run us through? Not necessarily line by line, but a general idea of what sort of uh, arguments these these articles or these uh, particular philosophers for vegetarianism or charity are introduced to the readers. Yeah, I mean, so we just we had to do since the students weren't going to do this as part of the class, like the main class with a professor lecturing on it. What we had to do was we had to try to look for kind of short, easy to read stuff. And so one thing to mention is that we also had videos. So we had optional videos they were encouraged to watch in addition to the arguments. And then they also met with their TAs and talked about the argument in the, in the section. So those were the factors they were exposed to. And the argument that they got for vegetarianism was roughly uh, an argument that tried to get students to focus on the fact that animals are sentient beings that experience pleasure and pain. And you can do various versions of these kinds of simple arguments where if you think of someone who is willing to cause pain to animals in order to increase their own happiness or pleasure a little bit, uh, typically people don't think that's okay. So typically people don't think it's okay, for example, to have something since it wasn't in the article, but you could think of a case like a dog fighting. If someone like does something that has animals caused pain or animals harming each other. And if the fact that if you take pleasure in that, we don't think that makes it okay. Most people think you shouldn't cause pain to sentient creatures. And if you're doing it to get pleasure yourself, that doesn't somehow make it okay. 
And then you draw students' uh, attention to the kind of analogy that those kinds of cases have to the, the phenomenon of eating meat, uh, where the animal comes from a factory farm. So the idea there is animals are suffering a lot of pain in these factory farms. And if you eat that meat, you're probably eating that meat because it gives you some kind of pleasure. So now that doesn't look any more justified than other cases of if someone uh, knowingly caused the, the harm or, or involved the harm being caused to animals because it would give them a little bit of pleasure. So, so, so that's the kind of argument, um, sort of a standard way of arguing um, that you, so you basically try to get them to have this objection. And so we didn't, and then basically the video is highlighting uh, the bring, making emotionally salient, I think, the suffering the animals and factory farms actually uh, endure. So that, 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 that was the vegetarian one. And then the charity one is basically a similar thing where you try to get people to see that in some cases you wouldn't think someone being uh, near or far away from you matters. And so, and so one common case, like we, there we use this example from Peter Singer, one of our, our uh, the leaders of the study, you know, he basically gives this example uh, of a kid in a pond, if a kid is drowning in a pond right in front of you, most people say it would be morally wrong not to jump in and help the kid. Uh, they think they should, and they think they would even jump in and help the kid if they could, if they know how to swim, if they don't want a little kid to drown. So then if you think, well, you could help people in a foreign country who are starving to death, who are little kids, by donating some money, why wouldn't you do that? It looks like it's a similar thing. You're, 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 you're doing a little, you're taking, you're, you're spending a little bit of your own money. You're taking a mild sacrifice to help someone in dire need. And so the only difference here seems to be the, the distance away the kid is. So basically both arguments, what they do is they, they start out from intuitions that we think the students will probably accept about one type of case. And they, and then they suggest don't though, if you, if you think that about this first case, aren't you committed to a stopping eating meat and in the second case, giving more to, to people in need in other countries. So that's not the cleanest explanation, but that's roughly the story. Yeah. So one of the things that you had mentioned and is discussed in the paper is, is the video, right? So, um, in the article, you you state that the proportion of students that actually watch the video is relatively low. Um, it was something like 50% watched a portion of it and something like 30% watched all of it. And that was based on self-reporting, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and I think one thing, my, I have to look it up in my memory from when we, when we went through the details was that we didn't get enough data to establish a statistically respectable conclusion about what exactly the video was doing. Um, but I remember at least at some point, we had sort of various waves of data coming in. Uh, I know at one point we, we had some data that suggested, but you know, weak data, uh, just suggesting that um, the video might actually be like backfiring. So it could be like the kids who watched the video actually were less likely to be affected, um, at least on the opinion questions. And, and I've since read that's happened in other, like if you start reading up on like, uh, so one group that's interested in this study are people who are trying to actually get people to stop eating meat. And so Peter Singer is very involved with those organizations. And so some of their studies have been 
Like if you show people a picture of a kid in Africa who's starving and you say, look at this kid, doesn't your heart go out to them? Don't you want to donate money? Uh, it's surprising, but some people uh, might be less inclined to give than if you just kind of tried to give them a straightforward case for doing it without that emotionally charged stimulus. Uh, and there and there's psychological speculations about why that's the case. But so anyway, so we don't. Yeah, so we didn't. All we have is self-report by how and um, I think that's right for how long they watch the video. I don't know that I can't remember. We might have uh, good like harder data on that, but we just don't know that it. It doesn't look like it was driving the the effect. We know that much. We don't. We don't have any reason to think that yet. So yeah, I guess one of the things that is worth considering just to figure out whether or not the video was uh, played any significant or statistical statistically significant role in the change of behavior is just to look at one group that watches the video and one group who talks about the argument or something. Um, but yeah, it's, it seems to me that in some ways we might think that showing the video and then talking about the argument that's refers to the suffering of animals might, they might make a correlation between the suffering of those particular animals that they watch in the video and um, the argument based on suffering. Um, and so then it's not as clear. It, becomes less clear that it's the philosophical arguments than like the emotional response in some ways. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think, see, for me, that's one of the more interesting things about this study actually, because that's what people tend to think, um, especially psychologists. But if you start thinking about this um, and if you read philosophers on this, you know, it, you, you, you might start questioning that there's a clean distinction between emotional response and a reason. So, um, you know, certainly Aristotle and Plato and then people like St. Thomas Aquinas uh, and in the Catholic tradition and then same thing in Eastern philosophy, uh, I'd say most Eastern philosophers, they tend to think um, a part of practical rationality is you appropriately perceiving and so either literally or metaphorically perceiving or seeing the value of uh, an event or, you know, whatever it is. And so that's one way I've thought about this is that um, there are interesting questions about if maybe what the maybe what's going on is like you know ordinary like if you tell someone don't you think it's wrong to uh, do this thing that brings about a bunch of harm they'll say oh sure yeah and then you're like well okay and then you convince them that eating meat causes harm by citing statistics they'll be like oh sure okay. Um, but then you might think if they watch a video or they tour like a factory farm they, and they actually in person have the first person experience what's happening and then they have these emotional reactions, maybe they, maybe they have um, a different kind of first person acquaintance with the, the negative effects of the harms that are being uh, suffered by the animals. And then that makes sense. So that would explain why then the arguments uh, – involving you know the start from the premise it's bad to harm animals <laughs> motivates them more but you might think it's it's the emotion is sort of enabling them to have a different type of belief about the negative effect that they couldn't have without the experience and it, in a way then um it's that's it's increasing their kind of rationality of their response 
to the suffering. So you wouldn't think it's like, it's like a motion that's not a part of reason. But I think you're right. What it would be would be that the argument in some sense by itself wouldn't be doing the work of making them more rational. You might think the person is becoming more rational by having this emotional experience and then being exposed to an argument. But the argument, yeah, so that, but you're, you'd write the argument still wouldn't be necessarily doing it. And that's, that's actually what we plan to um, uh, do. We have follow-up studies that we're talking about and working with this other team that published a similar paper. And exactly you said, Kevin, we want to divide up and say, um, have one group just get exposed to the argument, have the control, then you have like just the video, and then you'd have the video and the argument. And so that would be really interesting to me if you got maybe video plus argument has a bigger effect than either video or argument. Like that would be really interesting. Um, so yeah, I think you're you're dead on. That's where, you, where we have to go next. Yeah. So one of the other questions that we had we had written down, which now we find out that uh, that is being investigated by part of the team is whether or not the people who read the Singer article were more likely to donate to charity. So that's something that you'll be finding out. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of previous studies that have sh the evidence they have gathered indicates. Um, so it's like everything else in psychology. We don't really get any. It's very far from proof. Um, but, the, but the, you know, it's, it passes a certain threshold. So you got to take it seriously. There were all these other studies that made it look like our exposure to argument did not increase people's level of charity giving. And so what Eric and I think it's like, it's not Hauser, who's it? Anyway, there's Eric and this guy at Harvard, who I'm, I'm sadly not remembering his name on the fly. What they did is they had an, a, an argument contest and they invited philosophers and psychologists to try to write arguments. And the goal was they shouldn't be emotionally charged arguments. They should just be kind of straight up non-emotionally charged arguments. And what they did is they did a, a online thing where they exposed tons of people to all these arguments that people had submitted. And then they, and they figured out which ones looked like they were having an effect on donation levels. And they picked like the top, whatever it was, five. And then they did like a ton of people on those five. And what they discovered is they discovered, I think it was two, it was, a, I think one, the one that won was actually written by Singer. He wrote a new argument, <laughs> but uh, there, there was another one and like I had submitted an argument. And so what it did is it got philosophers to think about what kind of argument do you think might change people's behavior with charity, which is normally philosophers when you're writing an argument, you're just trying to say like, what's the best argument for this normative conclusion? Uh, what provides the most, the strongest philosophic support? This was more a challenge, like what argument do you think will get people to change their, their, their behavior? And so the surprise was they got several different arguments that look like they do that. Um, but there were these earlier studies showing the arguments don't do anything. So it's a really kind of interesting. So they're, they're going to have to do, you know, a bigger follow up um, and figure out what, what was going on there. Or was it a different demographic that was being studied? I don't know. You know, it's, it's kind of interesting. So is that um that research on which type of arguments most convincing is that something that's being published along with the article on charity that, uh, donation or is that um, being published i don't know separate? what eric's gonna do it's on if anyone's interested if you go to if you just googled eric schwitzgebel you know argument contest i bet it would come up so he's eric has his blog the splintered mind and so on there he's put up the initial like a pre-see of the results he got. 
Um, and I don't know what he's, I think he's going to probably publish that first and then they're probably going to use it in actual studies of, um, how it impacts, you know, and then you could start doing the same thing. You could, you could be like, well, if we had shown a video that didn't involve video. So if we showed a video, um, how would that affect it? What does it, does it, does it work in like undergrad classes or maybe that's one of my thoughts is I think they did mechanical Turk, which is like an online thing you can do where you just get like random people to do stuff for you and you pay them a small amount of money. So I think like they just, it was probably a pretty broad demographic. I mean, at least in the United States or something. Um, whereas a lot like our study was just these undergrads. So you might think that you get really different results with like, you know, undergrad and undergrad age people in the US. And then if you got to like a much broader demographic, I wouldn't be surprised if it had a bigger effect on older people, for example, but like these kinds of arguments. Um, so those are all things I think that are just, there's a bunch of, probably multiple studies that'll have to happen. <laughs> yeah. Is it, is it much of an issue in, in, so in class, like in classifying these arguments, uh, cause it seems like, I think I was reading James, uh, James, I think it's James Rachel's uh, argument for vegetarianism. Uh, in his paper, he, uh, sort of argues that his argument is not really consequentialist, even though it does mention suffering. It's more. It's more of. I think it's. Yeah, I think I think it's the the article is called a basic argument for vegetarianism, and and while Peter Singer, uh, who he, he himself identifies as as a consequentialist or a utilitarian. Um, where do we, where does, how do you classify arguments like Rachel's uh, when it's not so clear, you know, what kind of, kind of argument it is? Is it, because there's also this term common sense uh, morality and, and philosophy. I don't know if it would be classified under that sort of argument. Um, but yeah, I don't know if you could speak to a little bit about that, the sort of taxonomy or the category, categorizing of, of philosophy arguments or moral arguments. Yeah, so no, that's a good question about categorizing arguments. I mean, I think like for me, it's sort of like if if anyone listening has read Famine, Affluence, Morality by Singer, that's that involves that argument I mentioned about if a kid's drowning in a pond, you would save them. Um, and so wouldn't you also, uh, why, 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 if that's true, why wouldn't you help someone in a foreign country who's starving? Um, and so even though Singer is a utilitarian, he, that's not really, it doesn't presuppose like a strong utilitarian moral theory. And I would say the same thing about these vegetarianism arguments um, that the Rachel's that we used, it doesn't presuppose uh, any particular like overall moral theory. So moral theories are trying to give you like a general account of all of morality or something. And but that said, if you look at the kinds of arguments that we're looking at about vegetarianism, I think they have their natural home and with like the general style of argument being given there it is if you tried to generalize it in other domains across the board, the theory would start to look more like a utilitarian or consequentialist theory. So, for example, one thing is um, we mentioned in the paper, and this is one of our starting points, is that you can find most ethical theorists, uh, or, or not, okay, theorists of many, if not all, 
major moral theoretical traditions, including like African philosophy and Asian philosophy, have argued that it's wrong to eat factory farm meat. So uh, you can find people in all these different traditions making arguments. And I think, though, with the one we picked doesn't really represent very well, kind of even just in an initial way, a bunch of these ways that these other traditions have argued. So that's actually one thing that would be interesting to explore would be we had some success with this argument changing students' behavior, right, and changing minds. Um, if you did a different type of argument, say like, uh, you know, newer Kantian arguments about why it's wrong to eat meat or, um, you know, if you looked at Confucian arguments, why, uh, what would a Confucian argument against factory farm meat look like? I think it would be interesting to ask, uh, they would look very different than the Rachel's, I think. And then would they have a different effect? Um, so that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, I don't know if I'm answering directly the question you asked. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think that's, that's right. I mean, to, that was more of a question about, yeah, that um, because sometimes it's not that easy to, to uh, sort of put an argument in a, in a, in to one particular tradition because a lot, a lot of, uh, at least the articles or the, that Singer wrote and, and James Rachel's wrote, they're meant for, they're kind of sort of more or less intended for a broader, broader audience. And they might be appealing to maybe people's maybe common sense views about what the right thing to do is like, yeah, most people want to, uh, prevent suffering from happening, um, or think that suffering is bad, um, and then they proceed in this in this sort of way. They don't, as you mentioned, they don't presuppose any particular broader moral view about uh, right action or anything like that. But they mostly begin from those common sense, you know, initial positions about suffering. Uh, so it, it, it's not really it doesn't fit too nicely into one maybe one tradition over another because because of that so it's just interesting like if we're talking about what kinds of arguments uh work or uh produce these sort of results better uh it we might have a hard time in determining you know this this classification of kinds i guess yeah no i think that's right and it's and you're right now that you say it that um that is the format of a lot of the arguments you find in uh you know rachel's singer and other kind of if you take a intro to ethics class and you, and you do like applied topics a lot of the arguments are going to be like there are a lot of arguments by analogy or something like that and so it'll be sort of like okay what do you think about this one type of case and then there's an assumption usually that the the reader is going to have one sort of reaction to it and then there's the thought well if you think that about that case I'm going to try to convince you then you're committed to something else in another case. And so the starting point is some kind of assumption on the author's part about the kind of intuitive reactions and beliefs and judgments people are going to have about a case. And so it's, there's no kind of uh, stronger theoretical goal of, of behind any of this, uh, trying to convince people of like a, a stronger theory and, there's also not really a lot of engagement with inducing skepticism about how reliable our individual judgments about cases are. So I think that, that yeah, it's, it's usually more like uh, you're, you're trying to get the students to start from where they are and maybe try to see if they maybe have kind of inconsistencies or 
um, if they're if they're kind of look at the maybe they one thing they believe commits them to another thing, and then they have to decide whether they want to accept that, and then what do they want to do? Do they want to give up their first thing they started with, or add the new thought? And so that's it's a little bit more like expanding on common sense morality rather than uh, anything else. And then uh, this the one question that sort of popped up in my head uh, because I was thinking of this uh, this one episode in in uh, in the newsroom. I don't know if you've if you've ever seen that, that series by uh, Aaron Sorkin, but um, a lot of uh, there's this episode where they talk about you know the the news anchor uh, spending too much time looking at uh, the data and what sort of effects it's having on his audience. And to the point where he starts changing his behavior in light of, uh, in light of the results that he sees that you know people leave the show because he start starts to criticize, you know, this one group or this one demographic, and so he stops doing it. And I'm I'm wondering, and this is just uh, sort of on the for those as as more studies like this come out, if this might have effect on instructional behavior, uh, in terms of how they they introduce or they teach. Uh, teach the material if they see that, well, these sort of arguments are uh, changing behavior more so than these other sorts of arguments. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, I, my view is, I mean, that I'm, I, I think it's very unlikely that these results will generalize uh, to other domains. Um, I guess in my way of thinking about this is that the, the, the important part of this result really is that what you're getting is you're exposing students to arguments and they're changing their beliefs about what's moral and what they and their, and their claims about what they intend to do. And then they're actually uh, following through on their own intentions and beliefs. So I don't really think it's that important that, uh, you know, they had any particular belief at the end. Um, it's that they they thought more about what belief was correct, and they thought about the arguments for and against that, and they and they have a more like a reasonable belief at the end rather than just maybe either no belief or uh, just kind of whimsical belief they've inherited from their upbringing or whatever it is a sort of ungrounded belief. So they get a more well grounded belief, and then they act in line with that. And so to me. Um, I think it'll be good to think about how you can design classes to increase that effect. And the reason that we picked vegetarianism is because we thought, uh, I remember talking about this with Eric in the beginning, that we that this was the this was the topic that we thought we could get a dramatic change in belief and also a change in the, a, a belief and then an intention to change previous behavior. And the reason is, is because I think most people who are undergrads in the U.S., they just haven't really thought that much about eating meat in a very serious way. And they're not necessarily very aware of what's going on in the factory farms. So I think it's like a topic. Um, so take like unlike like abortion where people come in with really pretty, pretty strong views and a lot of people have views and. This is a more like a topic I think people are kind of like, it's not that important to most of them in like high school 
uh there's like the one-off kids who get really into vegetarianism they're like straight edge or who knows what but like most people are just like in the u.s like whatever they know vegetarians out there maybe but they never really thought took it seriously they haven't really thought about it or dealt with it and they haven't um been called upon to defend what they're doing and then they're ignorant of what's going on where the, where their food comes from it's like we don't know where what goes on with most of the products we get so i think because of that you know you get this effect where people change their belief a lot. And then they're like, Oh, now I'm going to, you know, if I were to act in line with that, it would be like a big change from like the statistical norm, but most other topics in moral philosophy aren't like that. I think most people have a more settled view on a lot of topics and it's less clear that they, to, to act in line with those beliefs, they're going to have to change their behavior very much. So I don't know. Yeah. So I'm a little, I sort of doubt how much it could change the whole way you would do a class, but I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question. Maybe, maybe you could, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's something I, I think I would be more worried about than think is exciting. Like trying to focus your class on changing the student behavior seems sort of dangerous. You might end up using the least good arguments and the ones that are most likely to change behavior. Right. So it seems like, in some cases, the arguments that are most likely to change behavior aren't going to be the most philosophically rigorous ones. And part of what we want to do in philosophy classes is sort of maybe in some ways convince people to change their behavior in a way that lines up with what they actually believe, but also demonstrate what a philosophical rigor entails and uh, how to argue. Yeah, my current thought is actually like, and I... I started to, to talk about doing this in like this one class I taught at KU, uh, I guess a year ago, but I never got around to do, I just, I realized I'd take more work, but this is the way I think that I'm going to approach this in the future is, um, you teach an applied topic in an intro to ethics course, and then you have an, you have these optional modules that I'm going to call experience and living modules. And so it's like, if you're a student and you're reading these arguments about vegetarianism, um, I'll be like, okay, you know, now if you want, you can take, you can, you can sign up for this experience in living vegetarianism module. And the kids who do that, what I'll do is I'll teach them about um, how do you change your behavior if you want to. So there's stuff, there's psychological stuff about that, um, habit formation and accountability mechanisms. And then we'll also be like, okay, so what, what do you want to do with your food? And then they'll decide what they want. And then we'll be like, okay, here's a place you can get recipes to try this for a week. And there'll be like a little group to do it together. And then they can try out acting on some new belief. And so, so that's my thought is it could be cool for philosophy professors to offer students um, tools if they decide that they should change their belief, their, their behavior and their character or something. Um, give them tools so they can do that, but make that just totally optional. And that's not really having to do with like the core uh, philosophic content of the course. Um, so that's an idea I have. And then you could do the same thing for like, uh, if you th teach like theories of well-being, and students come to realize like, okay, materialism and a lack of mindfulness look like they're uh, not making you more happy. And you could talk about how that would be explained on various theories of happiness. And then you could be like, oh, well, people want to take a, you know, learn a little bit more about how the stuff to actually be more happy. 
I think it would be cool if philosophers offered that, you know, on top. But I agree with you, Kevin, that if it replaced the philosophy, that would not be cool. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I think there is also, um, you brought this, I, I think this was brought up briefly. Uh, and I think Kevin mentioned this uh, on another occasion with me about, uh, I guess there there is a study done about uh sort of views that TAs have, uh, especially when it comes to vegetarianism, that I guess there's quite a large number, uh, uh, statistically speaking, that uh, of TAs that are vegetarian. And I think you, you I don't know if this is uh, also one of the uh, questions that, that was brought up in your, I guess, in the aftermath of the study as to whether TAs themselves who, who held these views uh, maybe discuss the material differently or with a, any more I mean, vigor than than they normally would any any uh, a position that they didn't hold because uh, because they know more about it they probably know more about those sort of arguments and know more about why they're compelling and so may may have presented them as such maybe un not necessarily intentionally but just because they happen to know it know it better so I don't know if that ever came up that discussion ever came up in the in the study as to sort of what the beliefs that the TAs held and what, what effects that might have and, and how they taught the, the material themselves. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, so we did worry about that and that's even at the end where we have a section that discusses like what could explain the phenomena of eating less meat. And that's one of the things we mentioned. Um, and there's another effect that is in the final write up. Um, and there's this uh, paper by this philosopher, Larry Blum on, on a, uh, it's on like community solidarity and something else, but I when he has this discussion of this that's not empirically based, but I think it's really compelling. Uh, he's talking about resistance. Uh, why did some people get involved with the resistance during, say, World War II, and other people don't? Right? Or you could ask the same question: Why did some people get involved with like the Underground Railroad, other people didn't? And so he, he just he speculates about this, but I but I've seen some empirical stuff that looks like it supports this. Is that um, if, if someone around you, um, is doing something that you might consider kind of hard to do, but you think is right. Um, one effect that's well known is that it can inspire you. So it can, it can provoke emotions of admiration that, that might motivate you. But the other thing is that people report it, they made it look like it wasn't that hard. So people, a lot of times will be like saying, so we thought the same thing might happen to vegetarianism. Like if your TA says, Oh, hey guys, here's the argument. And then imagine someone's like, oh, but it'd be really hard to be a vegetarian. That'd be like a total pain in my butt. Like, how would I figure out what to eat? Is it like all beans all the time? And oh, that's bad on the digestion to say, you know, we look into the details, whatever. You know, like kid, that's that's a common thing, is just like sounds kind of annoying. And how would it work? And like, wouldn't there be no good food? Like these and so then if the TA says, Yeah, that's you know what, I'm a vegetarian. When I first did it, I thought, oh, this is gonna be really hard. And then it turned out. It's fine and whatever. And so that's the kind of thing you can kind of, there's something, if someone thinks this would be hard for them to do, um, and then the TA's there and they're kind of like, they like the TA, that could be one thing. They want the TA's approval. That could be something. Then it could be like the TA's extra persuasive, which you brought up, right? Then there's um, maybe the TA sets this example that makes them think it wouldn't, I could do this. And so I think all those effects are definitely you know, you would just think they would be factors in some, in something, some impact of the, of the material. We don't have any evidence yet that that is what was driving these effects. But 
Um, I would not be surprised going down the line that various things about the psychology and the, and the teaching style of the person. Um, so one other thing I'll mention is that Eric has a student, Eric is a student who's interested in whether, does it matter whether you present a narrative or just an argument? So if you say like, oh yeah, I too was once not a meat eater, but then I saw the air of my ways and da 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 that narrative might provoke, you know, might, some people might be like, oh, you're like a moralistic jerk or something. But then some people might be like inspired and find, that would provoke admiration. So there's stuff about all that stuff. We, we, so we, we didn't have enough data. Like you have to, because that's the problem with all these studies. You need tons of data. Um, so I don't know. Some of this stuff, I don't know whether we'll ever study, you know, like that effect you're talking about. Like it would just be, there's just so much stuff to control for that I kind of think we won't, I don't know. Yeah, I sort of wonder if anyone could ever study that, really. But it's. A, but I think it's a. It's a super interesting question. <laughs> yeah, I think that was sort of uh, the. That's a kind of nice lead-in into that that final topic that we wanted to discuss briefly because I think there's this idea of privacy and 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 data collection, as you just mentioned. I mean, you know, there are interesting, still very interesting questions to ask, and that in theory could still could be studied. Um, but it might run into, uh, you know, privacy concerns or uh, concerns about respecting student autonomy and consent and privacy. So I guess one one of the questions that maybe touches a, p- a bit on uh, those different topics is how do you try to weigh those concerns and and still sort of uh, answer the question that uh, that you wanted to ask at least in this in this particular study. Yeah, I mean, I guess like, I mean, Eric would probably say something different. And Eric Schwitzkebel did a lot of the IRB stuff where you use these institutional re- review boards. Whenever you do studies involve, involving human subjects, you have to pass basically like an ethics or you have to kind of identify and then respond to any potential ethical worrying aspects about your research. And so Eric, because it was at, and so one thing to know is each school has its own institutional review board. And they're very different. <laughs> so it's kind of like a little bit bizarre when you start to learn more about it. It's, it's not kind of well, uh, it's not like a top-down system, uh, really. And, but so Eric dealt with the people at Riverside. Um, and so part of what I think you do, and I know this from working with psychologists, is you sort of figure out what study you want to run. And then you think about, oh, man, okay. What are the things the IRB board is going to bring up? Um, and there's a kind of standard list of stuff that, you, that you're aware of because you do an IRB training whenever you do this kind of study. Um, and so one of them is this thing about privacy. And then so like in our study, we, were, we had to anonymize every – that's what we, we basically anonymize all the data. Um, but there is – for me, the bigger issue, I guess, would be like you're deceiving the students – um, and so the way we got the purchase that we, we tracked their food, the initial idea, um, that we had was they went to section, they, you know, they heard all, they went to their class. And then what we did is we emailed everyone in the class, this, this email, and it said, there's a new food location open on campus and we're trying to get people's feedback on whether they like the food or not. So we're giving you $10 voucher to go get free food at the barn, this place called the barn. 
And so, so we're, and then the students, the idea was they would go buy the food and then we weren't, we really don't, there, this wasn't, this was basically false, right? It was like a lie. Uh, that's not really what was going on. It was deceptive. That was not what was going on. What was going on is we wanted them to go spend $10 at the barn and we weren't, we weren't, we didn't really, we were going to throw out the review. <laughs> we wanted to know what they ate, was it vegetarian or not? Um, so, so that was the thing we, we had this sort of deceiving the students about, uh, what was going on in order to get information about what they ate. Um, so then for logistical read that ended up just the redemption rate on that was very low. Like, I don't know what the students like, we were like, maybe it was out of the way, whatever the students just like, didn't take the $10 we gave them. So we got some data, but it wasn't enough to be statistically significant. And so then we got access to all the food, like the, the card numbers of all the students. And we were able to get access just to like, linked to their student ID, everything they bought for like months. And so we definitely did not ask them for access to that information. Um, so that's the thing is that there's, you know, kind you could think, okay, there is a kind of invasion of privacy here. Um, and there's definitely like a concern about we were doing things that were deceptive. So there was obviously not consent. <laughs> Um, to be part of the study. And so those are things, um, you know, common features of psychological studies basically today. And the thought is uh, you have to weigh the benefits of the research and you have to make distinctions between types of violations of people's right to consent. And uh, so you basically like look at harm and respect for autonomy and you say how how big are the concerns? What are the benefits of the study? Um, what are the likelihoods of actual harms to these people? Um, so you kind of, and then you have to kind of like calculate that all out and then basically argue, A, it's pretty minor. It's like Bush League uh, mistreatment of the students <laughs> for some substantive scholarly gain. Um, and then the IRB board comes in and it's like, okay, if you're like, you know, you ignored some problem or maybe you're just like wrong and it's a big, it's not Bush league, you know? So that's how that works. Um, so anyway, but that's, that's the gist. I don't know if you have yeah, specific follow-up questions though. So one of the things that I, yeah, that I wanted to ask about was just, um, so it seems like in, in, in most cases for psychological studies, you, you require the informed consent of the participants, right? So there are some cases in which informed consent isn't required, um, but I think that's pretty rare. And in, in, in this case, it doesn't seem like informed consent was received, at least uh, for much of what was studied to be studied, right? Well, well so I, I go back to the first thing you said. So I don't think that's true that uh, in most psychological studies, there's informed consent. Um, so there are just tons of psychological studies where, um, so for example, you know, they've now, I think many of them haven't replicated, but there are tons of social psychology experiments that like, here's a, a, a stock example will be, um, you know, you, uh, you're trying to, you, you basically like, um, ask people to come fill out some form. And then one group of people, you spray fart can in the spray, you, you get fart spray and you spray it in the, in the trash can next to your table. That's going to be like half the people. The other half people are going to come up and there's no fart spray. And you really want to know, like, does smelling the fart spray later affect their disposition to do something nice for another person, do some pro-social behavior? 
Um, and you don't tell the people like, oh, we're going to spray fart spray in here and try to figure out whether it's going to affect your behavior because then that would screw up your experiment. So what you do is you have some other story about what's going on. That's a lie. It's misleading. It's, I mean, it's not a lie. I mean, it's deceptive. We get into the details, but it's definitely deceptive. And so you're, you're involving them in an experiment. They are not consenting to what's going on in the experiment. So that's, and that's just, you know, a million experiments are like that um, in, in psychology. So I don't, this isn't really particularly different than this, I don't think, but maybe you're thinking somehow yeah. this is different. Yeah. 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 I guess what I was thinking is that in studies like those, you usually have at least the people volunteering, right? Um, um, they're not volunteering for right. the study that you're conducting, but they're volunteering for a study, right? That's true. Right. Right. Yeah, I don't know. So in this yeah. case, I, in this case it doesn't seem like any of the students. No, that's true. Right. Volunteer. Yeah. No, we definitely did not. I mean, I guess they did. Uh, they didn't volunteer to have their food purchases looked at, but actually, we did actually. Um, the way we got them to poll about their uh, opinions was that they were sent an email saying, "Oh, Professor Schwitzgabel is running the study in the class where he wasn't teaching." Um, and he's interested in students' attitudes. Um, there's this totally optional thing we want you to take about your opinions on these moral topics. But then I think there was like some extra credit attached or something. So um, they then volunteered to do that. And then what we did is then we also did gather this data. But it's true. They didn't, yeah, I mean, they didn't. Um, and so one thing we had to think about was, is there a way of getting this data that does involve getting their consent to be in a study? Um, this didn't seem like you can really do that in a way that's not going to threaten, uh, the ability to set up a con any kind of have, have controls, uh, in place. So I guess that, that was one of the thoughts was, and that's one thing IRB boards will think about and then press you on to say, well, look, do you really need to like do this without a certain type of consent in order to achieve your research aims? And so that's, we, we basically were thinking, you know, it's hard to see how we could ask all this, ask the students, like, can we have access to information about all the food you eat this month? Uh, you know, and then, oh, and then the, some of the students are in class reading about vegetarianism. Um, the worry would be, okay, well, then some of the students might know what's going on or the fact that they know someone's tracking their food purchases. That might increase the odds that people who say they want to be vegetarians will, just even just knowing someone's monitoring your behavior often will up compliance. Um, so yeah, so those are the kinds of things we were like, yeah, you know, we were just nervous about asking for that consent and we thought it would kind of weaken the results. Um, yeah. So, so one, one of the things that, so uh, data collection is obviously pretty widespread uh -huh. and in my opinion, problematically widespread, but it seems like at, at the university level and in philosophy departments, we're like one of the, the few places where it's right. part of our job to question whether or not that sort of thing is ethical, even in the case of the, there being some benefits, mm -hmm. it seems like the broader costs of data collection, they're studied by a lot of people and mm -hmm. seem mm -hmm. sort of dramatic, right? And so one of the things that I worry about is that um, like in the case of, data collection at the university level or even within philosophy mm -hmm. departments, we mm -hmm. might be normalizing something that we shouldn't be. Do you worry about that? Or do you worry that this study might 
um, might cause that sort of issue? Yeah, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, so I guess I'd be interested to hear more about what specifically worries you about data collection. Um, so, I mean, I would think like if I have a student, if I buy into a student meal plan, and I, you know, have a bank, I have a certain amount of money that comes in that, that plan. And then they have a system in place that whenever I go buy something, it records the item and deducts the amount from my account. And so then the university vendor has data, excuse me, that just has, you know, student ID numbers. It doesn't, which they don't have access to my name or anything, but they have student ID numbers and uh, information about the food I purchased with the money that I have this account with them. Um, and then, you know, we can, what we were able to do is then match those IDs to the, to the, to, uh, the people who are in the class and which, which, uh, which sections they enrolled in. So that data is all being collected. That's true. Um, I don't, yeah, to personally, I'm not, I mean, so I'm not, I'm open to persuasion, but I'm just not really seeing why that type of data collection is particularly worrisome. You know, maybe you're the worry is someone else could, could put it up to a more problematic usage than we did. Um, so is that, yeah, I guess maybe if you could say more about the worry about it. Yeah. So I guess one of the things is just that, um, so in the case of, the collection of this data, it might not be problematic in this particular yeah. case, but suppose the university is collecting this data and then um, they, I, the data itself could be used for other purposes, mm -hmm. right? And when it goes to other places, it's like there's a lot of studies that show that most anonymized data can be pretty easily de-anonymized, right? And so um, while in the case of this study, that didn't take place. Yeah, I mean, one thing to say about uh, the study is, so we made a big point of the people doing the analysis of what the students were eating. <laughs> it was anonymous inside that system. So like the per the people who are crunching the numbers and then Eric and Peter and I were looking at the data, we had no way even to, if we wanted to, given the information we had to go and figure out like, who was, you know, this person on this row of this spreadsheet who did the following. Um, and, and we, so we were really good, like within our process, it was anonymized, but, uh, if somebody wanted to, um, someone else could have just gotten access to the same data we did. And it would very easily be completely non-anonymous because like, like if someone had access to like those, the, the information that the registrar collects, plus the information this vendor collects. So someone at that school, or I'm sure at KU, could very easily have access to the data that would not be anonymous. Um, like we had to make a point to make it anonymous. So I think you're right that, you know, there might be a larger worry about what kinds of data is being collected about, yeah, I mean, any group of students at a university and what kind of, uh, use they're going to put it to. So I, I do definitely think that's not something to be naive about, that it could be misused in various ways um, or used in ethically problematic ways. So I definitely think that's right. Yeah, I mean, I and I was surprised. I mean, we are, I think, Eric, I think we were all surprised when we discovered, like, we really could get data on what everyone bought. Like, I mean, it's, in, the, in retrospect, you're like, okay, I'm not that surprised, but like, it's like, wow, okay. So like, if you're a kid at KU, like it could be that 
there's data on everything you eat for your four years. Like, okay, you probably were not thinking that was going to be kept somewhere. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's mentioned in, in the study that like, just in a general sense, students know that data is being collected. I think they are told that, at least generally speaking, the university collects that data, although they may not have been given particular reasons as to why they do. It may not matter to at all to these worries, but it, uh, there is, I think there's that initial layer of uh, understanding by, I don't, and again, that there's a question of what, how much on the mind is it to students that their information is being tracked? So it may not, it may not equate to that much of a, of a consent or awareness factor there yeah, and that's i mean i think of it more like as a thing to worry about is the harm that someone could do because i think with consent i mean it's like everything else where like you know i download they're like oh before i teach class i need to update zoom and they're inevitably like oh click agree to this like 50 page thing no one's going to scroll through you consented to knowing that i mean okay and there are these legal questions about whether you really consent to everything but i just think when i teach medical ethics if you start reading up on medical ethics it's really hard to get consent on things like when something's really important to someone and you think they'd be motivated to read the fine print. It's still very hard to make sure that people really understand what it is they're agreeing to. And like you say, is it going to sink in in a way that they really are going to remember that? And I think uh, a lot of this stuff with, especially with data collection, I think, I would be skeptical that in some robust sense, people are really consenting to the full scope of what's being collected and what the implications of that might be. So that's another thing, you know, you could be, I'm going to collect some data, you know, but then they, they would never be like, oh, I bet some professor is going to use this in a study, you know? So it's kind of like, um, you know, I think it's a hairy a territory where I think this notion that people consent, it's almost like a little bit of a fiction that we tell ourselves um, that we consent to this stuff that is going on when we click yes. Um, so anyway, yeah. Well, uh, well Brad, I, I, I mean, this, this, I think just this conversation alone on, on data collection could, I mean, we could go on uh, quite a bit more for it, but um, I think we've, we've more, uh, more or less taken, taking up a great deal of your time and we appreciate it very much. And before we, we let you go officially, I, I wanted to sort of have you have the last, sort of last word about, about the study, what sort of uh, things that you think are for sure that you think readers should, for sure should take away from it. Uh, what, what are the conclusions you think are, are pretty more or less, uh, you know, safe in terms of drawing away from the, the uh, from the study and then the questions that you, you hope to, that it raises and that you hope to um, build off of for future, for the future. Yeah, that's a good question. I guess, I mean, I think, uh, you know, the, what the study conclusively shows like most empirical studies is very little. <laughs> um, I think what it does is it, it rebuts a kind of skepticism that other people have had that undergraduate classes don't have much impact on people's kind of character and the way they live their life. And I think that skepticism has been supported by kind of not plausible psychological theories. Um, but then people have just made these assertions that, and so what this does is it, it shows that that's much too quick. People who've, people who've thought, 
undergraduate education does not shape people's character in lives. Um, that's not, we shouldn't leap to that. That skepticism is not warranted yet. And there, and so I think that for me, um, you know, encourage people to do a lot more research before we figure out whether and how undergraduate education can um, help people shape their own minds and character over time. And so I think that's a traditional ideal of humanistic education that I really like. And so I think, um, you know, we shouldn't be skeptical about that. We don't have any reason based on science to be skeptical of that. And it's a field that people should study. Um, but I'm not sure that uh, scientific study of this should guide, you know, our pedagogy as teachers is, I guess, the last thing I would say. Um, yeah. Well, Brad, uh, thank you for joining us today and, and appreciate you having this conversation about uh, about the uh, study that you that you conducted. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. And with that, I'd like to thank Kevin for joining me as my co-host today. And thank you all for listening. And hopefully you'll join us on the next episode of Lawrence Talks.